Hi, everyone, and welcome to the MLOps podcast. I am Dean, your host, and today I have with me Noah Weiss. Noah is an expert in AI and machine learning. Uh, she's a consultant working with companies to define and solve hard data problems. She is also on the advisory board of the Modern Agriculture Foundation and on the mentor team for the uh, Good Food Institute, where she applies her knowledge in the sort of alternative protein industry. Uh, she leads the, the Israeli community of women in data science and also participates in pro bono machine learning research, uh, working on deep learning for whale sounds, uh, which I find uh, very cool. She has over 12 years of experience, both in the industry and in academia. And she was previously a data scientist at Armis, working on machine learning in the fields of um, Internet of Things and, and, and Internet of Things security. And before that, she was a data scientist at Secure Touch and PayPal, working on risk and fraud detection. Um, and I think she's a prominent voice uh, in thinking about and, and working through uh, data science problems from first principles. And that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. So, Noah, thank you for making time. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start sort of from the middle of that intro. Um, and when I did some um, background research about you, the whale thing surprised me. Um, so how do you get into deep learning research around whale sounds? That sounds really cool. It is really cool. And I have a rather uh, unexpected answer, I think. I got into it through swing dancing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not what you Tell thought I'm going to say, is it? Um, no. So I'm an avid swing dancer. Uh, it's a big hobby of mine. And through the, com the swing, swing dancing community, I got to know uh, someone from the, uh, from the foundation. Uh, they were just uh, before their second expedition and he told me all about it. Uh, the expeditions is every year we go, well, most years we go on an expedition to uh, record, find and record humpback whales. Um, to use the data for our models. And uh, so this friend told me all about it. And then a few few months later, when I had some free time, I rang him up and I said, okay, I'm, I'm in. That's amazing. And um, so can you explain a bit about how you apply deep learning there? Like what what is the uh, machine learning aspect of that look like? Yeah, of course. So... Basically, what we do is we work with marine biologists, researchers. I should also mention that we don't only work with whales anymore. Uh, it started mm -hmm. focusing on whales. Whales are still our, uh, our main focus. But today we work with marine mammals in general, um, manatees, dolphins. And we work with biologists, researchers uh, in the field, and we help them use their data because same as with a lot of different domains, um, the, um, the tool of human tagging is very, very expensive. Uh, and sometimes those researchers have just vast amounts of recordings, of audio recordings um, that they would like to get more information from. But having themselves or students going over hours of recording and tagging everything is a lot of work. So we help them do that with the use of machine learning. 
That sounds, uh, that sounds really, really amazing. I think that answer is sort of a good segue into the fact that machine learning is everywhere today. Um, and it's true for whale and dolphin and manatee research, but it's uh, true as well for companies in the industry. And many, if not all of them, want to incorporate machine learning into their organization, into their product. And this is, of course, on a spectrum from companies saying, I have data and I heard that data is a useful thing, so I want to do something with that data and all the way to companies where the company was founded and exists solely for the purpose of building a machine learning product. The best example of this are autonomous driving uh, uh, companies and things like that, but not just them. Um, and so my, my first question uh, uh, about this topic is sort of, what do you think most people get wrong when they think about starting out a new machine learning project? Okay, so I have an answer that uh, is kind of provocative, and I just might get kicked out of some uh, machine learning groups after this podcast airs. But I think that the main thing people get get wrong uh, is thinking about those projects as machine learning projects. Mm. Um, I think that the the right way to go about it is to be really focused on what the current immediate problem that you're trying to fix is, to solve is. And then maybe you should use machine learning, but maybe you shouldn't. A lot of times people go straight, like head on towards the machine learning. And obviously I get it. I love machine learning. It, I wouldn't be focusing on professional life uh, on it if I uh, hadn't. But it's not always the best solution, especially if you're a startup. Um, I have a talk called the Quick and Dirty uh, AI Startup, where I talk about startups that have AI, as a main component of the products. And especially when you're a young startup, you want to be really, really lean and, and really conservative with your resources. You don't want to spend a lot of time on something that you might not need. Like every day counts. Um, and I see startups that despite that fact, they spend a lot of time and effort on creating machine learning models where simpler solutions could suffice. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, going for a rule-based uh, algorithm, something that's like uh, nested if-thens. Uh, like people really, <laughs> like they get really bad rep, um, but it could be really useful, especially if you have domain knowledge that you could use. And for most startups, that could get you through those first stages. It depends, of course. You know, sometimes autonomous cars, obviously you need to have like proper machine, like you need to go full scientific there. You can't just uh, do the quick and dirty solution. Um, but for a lot of problems, quick and dirty will get you there. Even if you are going to go and build a machine learning model, there are ways to make it um, more cost effective, um, mm -hmm. like more efficient. For example, using so deep learning is all the rage, right? It's been the case for a few years now. Everybody talks about it. Everything that's uh, cool needs to be deep learning. But for a lot of problems, especially if we're talking um, outside the field of uh, computer vision or audio processing, classical machine learning will give you a much better solution when you need to train your own model. Mm -hmm. Or, for example, if we're talking about uh, uh, natural language processing, then using existing uh, public models, foundation models, uh, those big ones that, you know, uh, huge companies like Google already trained and released, and you can use them now. Um, so there are a lot of solutions that are maybe not as sexy, 
maybe using a human in the loop where you have a per person actually reviewing all or some of the results of the model before it goes towards the, the user at the end or whatever way you incorporate your model. Um, so they're not as cool. It's not something that you'll boast about in your next conference, but it gets the job done and it does it much faster, which can really be a game changer for a young startup and honestly also a larger company. Yeah, I think that the, the thing about this, so first there's that uh, joke that before deep learning was all the rage, the real machine learning was done in ifs and else's. Um, so I, I don't know if that was exactly true, but, but there's definitely something to that. I, I also think that even when you look at the cutting edge stuff, um, I don't know if this is uh, something that's like really wide, uh, uh, public knowledge, but if you're, if we go to the most cutting edge of cutting edge models right now, which is probably chat GPT, right. Versus, uh, GPT three, um, like I was using GPT three, like the API from a very early stage when they released it. And then obviously ChatGPT when it came out, um, the, the main realization there is that the difference between them is not the underlying model, but the fact that the, the, the original GPT was wrapped in basically a prompt engineering wrapper that makes it respond in the way that ChatGPT does, which is more accessible to humans. So that experience is sort exactly. of the, the, the similar approach. That's not just train. I mean, we all know OpenAI is training bigger and better models, but that doesn't preclude the need to actually think about this problem as a human oriented problem where you're trying to deliver business value. And if you train the smartest model on the block, but no one can use it, then doesn't matter that it has the most uh, parameters, whatever. Um, so I, I think this applies, if it applies to OpenAI and ChatGPT, then it definitely applies to the people that are doing uh, simpler problems, um, which are maybe even more valuable from a business perspective, but let's say, simpler uh, technologically. And the other point I'll make, and, and this might be an interesting way to transition to talk about this sort of as an end-to-end -end process, um, but even if you do this as a first step, right, and, and the later plan is to train a machine learning model, that if-else model, uh, if we call it that, becomes sort of a baseline. Like if we can't outperform that if-else, then the cool machine deep learning model that we built maybe shouldn't go into production. Um, and so it's, it's a a uh, low effort way to get some connection to reality to see uh, what a naive solution would, would give us. And sometimes that's good enough. Uh, so, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think any data science machine learning product should start with a naive solution. You know, you, you go like as naive as possible, this should be your baseline. And then everything else that you build, I mean, it's just as part of the project. I'm not even saying like build this, this naive solution and then put it in production. Even just as part of my research project, I want to know what to compare to. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it's a very important part and it's not over, like it's, it's often overlooked. So I guess before we talk about the entire sort of uh, process, sort of from starting out to, I don't know, when you're in the, in the machine learning heaven, um, how, how do I know which category I belong to? Like if, if we spoke about the one extreme case being an if else will solve all my problems and the other case being I'm, I'm actually an autonomous driving uh, company and I have to start from deep learning. Um, obviously those are the uh, easy cases, um, but how do I know to, towards which side uh, I'm leaning as a company? 
Yeah, so there are a few rule of, rules of thumb that I can give here, um, though obviously like none of them is perfect. You have to really consider it all, all the circumstances. One thing you could uh, think about is um, how much domain knowledge uh, that is relevant to your product and what you're trying to solve uh, exists and how useful it is. Because if you have a lot of it, then maybe an if-then, a rule-based engine could really be enough for you right now. Um, I worked in uh, cybersecurity and fraud detection for uh, some time of my career, and that is an example where domain knowledge really goes a long way. Um, mm -hmm. You really know how, like, where you should look and what features you should build, and and you you can do a lot without even like before even putting the model um, into the problem. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Um, another question is: uh, Do you have data, and how much of it do you have? And is it good data? Does it have all of the details you might need? Is it labeled? Um, those are, I mean, if you don't have enough data or if the data you have isn't good quality enough, then you're not going to be able to uh, build a machine learning model anyway. So it really, it really depends on the circumstances because sometimes even if you don't have a lot of data, you can use uh, existing models like um, foundation models, or maybe you can buy the data or use synthetic data, but it does make it a much harder problem. So it's definitely a downside for machine learning in that case. Mm -hmm. um, I would also consider whether the domain is rapidly changing. That is also a for, uh, for machine learning. Okay, so um, another factor, which is an important one, I think, is time constraints. So when I think about uh, that, uh, like the whole process, I don't think about just what I want my end product to be, but what is the goal right now? Maybe right now, all you need as a founder, as a founder is to have a demo for potential investors, for example. And maybe you need that demo to be done in three weeks. And in that case, for example, I would definitely try to avoid a model since there's a lot of uncertainty in those cases. Um, so there are a lot of uh, a lot of considerations to take into account. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, uh, I tend to agree, and I think that also um, the healthy mentality here is you start from something small that's provable, and then adjust from that. So talked about a baseline earlier, Absolutely. but that last point about time, time frame is, is really important because if you, like, if you take three weeks to build out a machine learning model, if, even if that's the right thing to do, but you end up like not being able to show anything because you spent all that time learning about how to apply sort of machine learning to your uh, data problem, then you're not going to get more time to work on it. Um, and so getting a result fast is with a simpler uh, if else model sometimes is, is a high priority just so that you can get sort of the uh, credit you need to work on that more complicated one. Um, yeah. But, but I guess like the talking about this or bringing this to the process level, um, how do you think about the process of developing machine learning models? And, and from, from our experience, like you can uh, roughly divide the world into two. The projects that are like for fun, you do them usually in a notebook. It's cool to show, but no one is ever going to use them. And the ones that are going to actually have a real world impact. So if we're focusing on that type, uh, how does the process for developing those models look like? So the impact ones. Yeah. 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 Um, 
So again, I would say that I'm my my agenda is to get people more into the mindset of really focusing on their goal and not just the end goal, but the goal right now. So really realize what you need right now and build for it. It also means for a lot of data scientists to be more uh, like in, in better contact with the like whoever is going to use that model. So maybe it means being more in contact with the product managers and maybe the users themselves, because a lot of times, so data scientists, we're very detail oriented people and we're very much into focusing and like zooming in on our problem and doing the most research and going to like the more like most interesting places like science wise. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not always what the product needs. And again, if it, if it's just for fun, then like wh what the heck? Heck, I can play around with it as much as I want. But if I am working for a company and I want to get uh, like to actually have an impact, then I would say be in constant contact with those people that can give you the indications of what exactly needs to be done. And always have in the back of your mind is what I'm doing the most efficient way to get there. Um, I want to say the quickest, but it's not always about being the quickest. You, you don't all, only want to, like, especially if you're not an early stage startup anymore, you want to build things that are going to last um, and then sure. they're going to be good. But maybe for that, you don't need to go for like the extra sciencey solution. And you can focus on stuff that is more, uh, and I'm going to say a word that data scientists don't like to hear, the low-hanging fruit. Or just in general, like keep in mind the different options to get where you need to go. Fair enough. Uh, I, don't know, I love the low-hanging fruit uh, terminology. We use it a lot at DAGSUP, so uh, I can totally, okay. totally relate to that. Um, so I guess like... Uh, extrapolating from what you're saying, I, I, I tend to agree that one of the challenges is sort of disconnecting the work that you're doing from uh, sort of the, the consumer, the user, uh, from the product that you're building this into. What are other sort of, let's say, unspoken challenges that uh, occur in this development process? Um, so I think that the what I see as a consultant working with different companies and, and also as part of my work in, uh, in the community in uh, women in data science Israel, mm -hmm. um, what I keep hearing about that is somehow like, doesn't, doesn't really make the public discussions is actually more of the, um, let's call it organizational challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, so data science, it's still, it's still rather new. I mean, we've been around for a few years now. It's not like fresh yeah. off the boat or, whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's still, we like, there isn't really uh, a consolidated process for how a tech company should work with data science, with data science teams. Um, and there's a lot of confusion there. Um, you, you hear a lot of data scientists uh, about, like they talk about the connection with the product manager. That is a very, very common pain point. Um, and sometimes it's not really clear about implementation. Once you have a solution, you need to really implement it. So like, who should do it? And like, do I even get the resources for it? I've worked with data science managers who already had full solutions ready to implement, and, mm -hmm. but the developers needed to, to take that piece of code and connect it to everything you need to connect it to. 
just they didn't have time allotted to work on that. And those were solutions that the, the company asked for. It's not like they just woke up one day and decided to do it. That's the hard problem. <laughs> I mean, the data science is the easy problem. I'm so going to get, <laughs> I'm going to get so much hate mail after this podcast. Data science is not really the easy problem. There are a lot of hard problems in data science. But I don't know. I'm I'm better at answering those, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> at solving enough. those. Um, I I think it really depends on the circumstances. I can tell you that as part of my work with the Weeds community and with specifically, we have a forum for data science managers. Mm-hmm. Um, again, as part of the community, so it's only for women. But we talk about those things a lot. There isn't one solution. It really depends on like the specific use case. But you need to really be aware of it. You need to be aware of that being a problem because the road hasn't really been paved yet. There isn't a mm-hmm. textbook for how to work well with like other departments, with your executives that probably expect you to deliver much faster because they're used to software, like to to <laughs> just software engineers and things that you can. Um, build more quickly and also with less uncertainty, which is not the case for us, as we well know. Um, So, yeah, those are the the most common challenges that I see that are usually only spoken about like under uh, behind closed doors. Yeah, fair enough. I I, I think I don't remember who used this term first. Maybe it was Laszlo on this uh, podcast, but uh, someone uh, uh, sort of categorized this into like uh, people, platforms, and uh, processes or something like that. I, I remember it was three Ps, but I might be wrong about one of them. Um, so the, the platforms, like there, there are a bunch of tools, right? Like, like even as, as a company that's building one of these tools, but there, there are a lot of solutions for different things. And, some, and for maybe... More often than not, the problem is knowing which tools you need to use, which already relates to the processes that you're uh, implementing or planning on implementing within your organization, which is, of course, as you say, it's like every company has maybe somewhat similar problems, but the uh, configuration of those problems is slightly different. And you need to be able to understand where you are in the problem space to know exactly which tool or which adaptation of a certain tool uh, applies. And that's even before we touch upon the people, which I think is the main main point you were you were trying to make. Um, the as, as you probably know, this is sort of a joke within WhatsApp groups and on LinkedIn and everything. We're not even sure what the job titles are. So talking about interfaces between job titles is is, is so so far away from us uh, that it's that it's crazy. Um, I, I guess my tips on this, right, from from our experiences, um, it, it all relates. Like this relates to what we were talking about earlier. If you can show value faster, then you have more leverage within the organization. And one of the things that Absolutely. I that I that I heard uh, from more than one comp, that sort of one data science uh, uh, team, is that what you actually want to do is sometimes you don't get the development resources because the organization doesn't understand that data science is not like other software development uh, teams and things like that. So obviously there's a communication aspect of ideally you set expectations in advance, but when that doesn't happen, the um, relative advantage we as data scientists have is, is data. So you can basically go ahead and show that on this theoretical benchmark, 
you would do better than what the company is currently doing. And you can translate that into what the, the sort of business people care about, right? Like we could earn X more dollars if this model was deployed last month and we're not making that money because we're not deploying it. Is it worth more than the time the developers would invest in developing that? And that sort of, I think, helps convey the message. Now I'm choosing the easy mode, right? Because I chose a theoretical case where you can actually tr translate this into, into like actual money that's sitting on the table and no one is taking. Um, but I think this is sort of a recurring theme. Like when I speak to the teams in the larger organizations where they already have like, you know, the, the easiest example when you go to the extremes, like Google, right? Like if their recommendation engine um, is slightly worse, that could be literally millions of dollars that they're, that they're not making. Um, and so in those cases, like improving the model by a tiny bit is really meaningful. And so they invest a lot of um, time and effort into making sure they can always deploy the best model uh, as fast as, as, as possible. So I guess, yeah, like what, what other uh, best practices do you recommend to sort of companies that you're working with? Um... Yeah, so the ones are already mentioned about really being focused on what you're trying to achieve uh, and like the operalization of it, not just like having a better model, but like what are the main pain points for your users that you want to um, to solve? And then everything should start from there. Mm -hmm. Also, um, I really preach for being very conscious and deliberate about choosing what abstraction you would use for your machine learning project um, before you start diving into all of the other details. So, so um, what do you mean? I'll yeah. just make, yeah, <laughs> because what, it's not, it's not a term that's, that's commonly used with, I think, I think that's part of the problem because we don't really talk about it. So mm -hmm. um, I'm going to shamelessly plug here as well and say that I have a talk about that that I gave in uh, a couple of the Women Data Science Israel meetups um, about mm -hmm. choosing the, the best machine learning abstraction for your business needs. So I'll give an example because it works better with an example. Um, I said that I used to work uh, for like in fraud detection. So for fraud detection, um, maybe I work for PayPal, I did. And I want to find out of all of the transactions that users did today, I want to find the fraudulent transactions. Mm -hmm. So I could think about that as a classification problem where I take each transaction and I classify it to like fraudulent or legit. And I can think about it as an anomaly detection problem. I can think about it as a clustering problem. So that's what I mean when I say abstractions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times data scientists, and again, where people, most data scientists, they're very like, science like data science oriented and like in our communities we talk about um like the the most fitting like sign theoretically fitting way to solve each problem but that mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily be the way that's best for your business needs at the moment um so i would say like really consider that like uh, just because i'm working on a problem that maybe screams like graph-based machine learning, for example, it doesn't mean that that's really what would be best to implement here. Maybe I need something quicker. Maybe I don't really need um, everything that graph-based machine learning could give me. 
Uh, but if I do it as a classifier, for example, I could deliver it much more quickly or maybe have it more stable, or maybe um, the performance time, the runtime would be uh, much quicker, which is important to me. Stuff like that. I don't really have, you know, it's a lot of <laughs> details to get into right now. So I would really recommend anyone who, uh, whose interest I've pick, picked here um, to check out the talk. Um, though, yeah. I think it's only in Hebrew. So if you're interested, ping me and I'll make sure to have it in English at some point. Yeah, if, if you uh -huh. comment on this uh, video and ask for the talk in English, that will help push not uh, publish an English version uh, of it. Um, but yeah, that sounds like something I, I want to listen to. We'll, we'll add a link anyway in the, in the description of the episode. Um, but yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, you can't solve a problem if you're not thinking about it correctly. And so figuring out how to think about machine learning problems in a, in a way that's effective is really, really important. Um, and yeah, that, that sounds like a really useful, uh, really useful talk, I guess. What, what um, diving or moving into maybe what you're doing today, how, how does your day-to-day -day look like? Like what, what, what does it mean from your perspective to be a da uh, data science and machine learning consultant? So I work with different companies on um it really depends on what each company needs. Sometimes I just help with the strategy, like I hear where they're at, what where they're trying to get, what data they have, what abilities they have, and I help them build a strategy of what they should try, how long they should expect it to take, stuff like that. And that's mm -hmm. usually shorter consultations. Um, there are companies that I uh, work with on longer, on like projects where I not only help them um, design the roadmap, but I also build the project themselves, like write the actual code and play with the actual data, which is my favorite part. Um, and I also, I mentor, so something that became very popular, mostly once, uh, you know, that point a few years back where the market was flooded with junior data scientists and mm -hmm. had really very few seniors, but everybody wanted a senior because you can normally when you start, you can only hire one data scientist and you yes. want them to know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So a solution that the market came up with is a lot of times you hire a junior or a mid-level data scientist, and then you have um, an external consultant, a consultant consult them, like mentor them. Mm -hmm. um, like a couple of hours a week. So that's also mm -hmm. something I do. Um, but mostly at this, uh, for the last few months, I've been focusing on uh, my my own uh, project in uh, uh, alternative protein, which is part of the food tech industry or climate tech industry, depends who you ask. Uh, it's the it's a, a global name, a, a generic name for the field of taking food that today we get from uh, using animals. So uh, dairy, meat, et cetera, and producing it in a way that doesn't involve animals, whether it's fully plant-based or whether you're using cultivated meat, for example. Um, so that's something that I'm uh, focused on and I'm looking for, uh, for those problems, for those bottlenecks in the industry that could be solved with machine learning uh, and trying to, to help the, the field get a, a significant boost forward. Interesting. So when when we spoke about this for the first time, I was kind of surprised that um, 
that sort of you're working on this, uh, mainly because I didn't know that there was a data or a serious data science component of food tech. So can you explain sort of your angle? Like, how did you get interested in this? And what, what does doing data science in this context mean? So personally, I got into it from the, um, I'm, I'm a longtime vegan, uh, and I'm a mm. big believer in moving away from uh, factory farming and using animals uh, and it's part of our food industry. So mm -hmm. my personal interest was to see how I could use my own skill set uh, to help bring us closer uh, to that goal. And I was very interested to find that in the field of alternative protein specifically, uh, there is a lot. So it's a very new field. It's, mm -hmm. I think there was a, a major like boost in development and new startups and everything probably like two or three years ago. Um, and there's getting to be more and more data and the technology is very advanced and very interesting, by the way. And mm -hmm. you know how in most domains where you have data science, then the the major problems have already been solved. So that's yeah. not the case there. So there's okay. a lot of room for, for improvement. Um, and those are hard problems. Um, like those are, if they weren't hard problems, they would have been solved by now. Uh, mm -hmm. There are some hard problems which are very challenging and very interesting. And uh, I think machine learning, if I can take us back to the beginning of uh, this session when we said it, like it's a tool and it can be a very useful tool. So I think it can be very useful in this case as well. Interesting. So if I'm listening to this episode and uh, maybe I maybe someone's sort of uh, sharing your, uh, let's say, ideological uh, um, um, outlook or it's just like thinks this is a cool field and they want to get into it. Like, how do, how do you start doing data science in the food tech industry? That is a good question. I mean, personally, I, I started in a way that's probably not traditional, which is just looked for all of the people that I could find that I thought might know anything about it. And I, I cold emailed them and then I met up with them and I talked to them. And uh, that, that's how I got started. It's, it's not for everyone. Um, I mean, I feel very comfortable doing that. Um, also, due to my experience with being a self-employed and independent consultant, um, I guess it depends on where that person is because so... A lot of places have communities around alternative protein. Uh, if you're located in somewhere that's a high-tech hub like San Francisco mm -hmm. or London and obviously Israel, um, yeah. then you can find communities uh, that focus on alternative protein and about like food tech with that focus. So that's somewhere you could start. Or you could... Um, so there's... an an organization called the Good Food Institute or GFI. And they're a nonprofit organization that um, really has done a lot to promote everything alternative protein. And they have a website full of relevant information. So that's also a good place to start. I've had mm -hmm. a couple of people approaching me about um, what are important problems um, in the field right now that one could attempt to solve. And they have like a full database and have all the information about it. So it's also, you can browse through that and get to know, um, like get to know the ropes. 
Interesting. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I guess there there are. Um, if I remember correctly, you could find probably some semi-related like Kaggle competitions and things like that. So those things exist. I tend to agree with you um, that it's it's a nascent field. Like I think that the biology, um, maybe surprisingly, because it's usually right. Like writing software is faster than doing biological experiments. But in this case, the biology is ahead of the software. Uh, in many senses. So there are a lot of unsolved problems that in other fields are seem basic, but have not yet been solved for this specific case. Um, so I, I think it's very cool. And, and then of course, there's the sort of uh, um, like mission aspect of it. Like it, it, you're, you're contributing to something that's very um, important and can do a lot of, a, a lot of good, I think, uh, uh, in the world. So um, yeah, I guess maybe taking this this opportunity to take a step back. Um, when you look at the uh, machine learning and, and MLOps world, right? Like we talked about ChatGPT a bit. I, it, this is still like to the date of us recording this podcast, this, this is still the latest and greatest model, but we'll see what happens until until this podcast is released next week and until the... Um, until the next podcast, the next episode is recorded. And you know, Google announced that they're going to release a bigger, yeah. better. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, yeah. For, for now, for now, I feel like the latest update uh, to to this date is that both the Google and Microsoft launches have got for their like incorporated ChatGPT or ChatGPT competitor into search have gone less than spectacularly well. Uh, like people are more joking about the fact that they made like the models made mistakes within the demos uh, of the launch. So that's kind of funny, um, but it shows that Microsoft and Google can still have startup mentality, which I think is also uh, cool and uh, scary at the same time. Um, so yeah, what, what are your predictions about where we're going? So I think that a lot of things will really consolidate in the organizational aspect, the workflow aspect. I mean, we discussed that earlier. I think we're still figuring things out. It's not really clear to people what can be done with data science. I mean, mostly to non-data scientists, but those are the people that hire data scientists. What can be done, how it should be done. Um, there aren't really good, you know, we have for software engineering, uh, you have uh, Agile and you have, I mean, it's pretty old school, but Waterfall, everything is, they've talked about it tons. And mm -hmm. for us, so Agile, you could work with Agile, but it doesn't like necessarily fits as it is. And it doesn't really, it's not really clear if you should have your own product manager or not and stuff like that. And also you mentioned it earlier about the job title. We use the term data scientists to describe everyone. And in reality, you have a lot of different, very uh, different jobs um, hiding <laughs> within that cluster. So I think yeah. in in the next few years, I hope that we'll see it consolidate into something that's a bit clearer. Mm -hmm. um, and even more so with MLOps, uh, because that's even a newer field <laughs> than machine learning in general. I think it would be, there would be more... Um, established best practices of how to go about it and what the best tools are and um, like to, you would see more positions for uh, MLOps people and or at least so I hope because it should be the case. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, people are now christening LLM ops, right? So uh, we might just have a bunch of other ops roles, uh, and then all of them are going to be called ops people, and we'll have all the of the problem. capital letters. Yes. yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> letter soup. Um, so yeah, maybe that's that's the direction we're we're going towards. But but I mean, s sort of. It's it's kind of a joke, but it's also not a joke at this point. I feel like the time horizon for which making a reasonable prediction uh, makes sense is is becoming shorter. Like I was I was contemplating if I should ask you what are your predictions for next month, but. Uh, maybe that's maybe that's a bit too cynical. It might, it, I, like jokes aside, you, we we don't know. There are so many interesting models that are that I know are in the pipeline for some of these companies, um, and I'm guessing, and some of them are already public. Um, yeah, like the world is changing fast, so it's it's. I feel like it's becoming yeah. harder to make predictions. But I think also for the vast majority of us, it doesn't really matter. I mean. It's not like whether our predictions are correct or not. We're just talking about it because it's interesting. But except yeah. for, again, like very few people, you're not really going to make any major decisions based on that. So it's mm -hmm. fun to make predictions and then see that we're wrong. Yeah, well, or right. I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe it's it's useful to make predictions if you can act on them. I agree with you. Otherwise, it's just... Uh, it's fun, but not as useful. Do you so, know prediction yeah. markets? There are places where you can bet on predictions and uh, like maybe monetize it. Though I think that the monetization aspect isn't really working well right now. Yeah. So I'm a yeah I'm a um, Astral Codex Ten uh, listener, which I guess we're maybe moving to. We should have started with that, Dean. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so who's I'm your a... favorite unsung character? Uh, I have not read Unsung. I'm familiar with it, but I have not read it. I know, I know. Uh, so, so that's also, um, yeah, I have holes in my in my rationalist education. H.P. Moore, at the very least? Uh, no, no. <laughs> so this is... This You're going to get kicked out of some communities when this podcast airs. Possibly. I mean, Guy might uh, discommunicate, uh, um, excommunicate me, sorry. But... Uh, yeah, no, but uh, like, yes, you can you can make predictions. Uh, you can make bets on your predictions. I feel like, yeah, that's that's a good point. So I guess, but uh, continuing from this, it's kind of related. Is what do you think is true, but but few people agree with? Like, what would you make a lot of money if you bet on it in a prediction market? Okay, um, I I don't know if it's something that you can actually put a prediction on, but my most controversial view that I most strongly believe in and if i haven't gotten kicked out of basically all of the israeli data science group by now then i will <laughs> after i answer this is that the manager of the data science team does not need to be the best data science the, sorry the best data scientist on the team um i mean not technically they should be good managers um mm -hmm. they should really focus on that and i think that um, the state of mind that I see mostly talked about uh, of looking for someone who's also like the, the tech lead, let's say, like the best data scientist remembers all of the tiny, tiny details and have implemented all of models in prediction. Um, it just means that you're going to get, if you're focusing on that, you're going to miss out on other um, qualities. And if you're focusing on that, you're probably going to get someone who's 
not as skilled in actual managing because most of us are not like we we don't have a perfect ten in all of our skill set. Um, so I think that data science managers should focus on managing and that when you hire for one, you should also focus on that. And they do really, really do not need to be um, with the best uh, technical, let's call it technical skills as far as data science is related. I like that. That's a good answer because it's, uh, you're not, um, you didn't choose a politically convenient answer. <laughs> Let's call it. Oh like yeah. That. Not at all. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Like, uh, this, this is a hard question. That was a good answer. Um, Thank so, you. so I guess to, to, um, finish things up, like, um, any recommendations for the audience? And it really doesn't have to be uh, data science related. We, we did speak about a bunch of things. So this is, if you're listening, uh, we'll link to as many things as I'll uh, remember and find in the recording. Um, but yeah, any other recommendations or things I should uh, add here? Okay, so you said that it can be anything. So uh, that means that I'm going to go into preach mode and I'm going to tell our listeners about intermittent fasting, which is the best thing you could possibly do. Oh my God, do it. It is so good. Um, so I've been doing that for a few years and uh, people ask me, Noah, how do you manage to do so many things? Nobody asked me that. I asked it myself that every once in a while and uh i'm sorry i'm getting i'm getting ridiculous no, <laughs> as far, the more the more we go yeah um no but seriously i think it's uh, a a great hack that i really wish for more people to get to know uh it's uh, called intermittent fasting some people call it uh 16 8 or 18 6 because you fast i mean you only drink water for say 16 hours out of the 24 hours of the day and then eat only during a time period of say eight hours. And it's really, really amazing the effect it has on your body and mind. It just, you're more energetic. You can focus more. Like you don't get, you know, like that uh, post-lunch coma. <laughs> you don't have that anymore. And it really allows me to, like, I'm, I'm very passionate about my work, um, all cynicism aside. I don't usually, uh, like I usually keep my cynicism like good amounts, but um, I am very passionate about, passionate about what I do and I want to deliver the best results uh, to my clients and to the community that I lead and to people that I work with in general and right now with alternative protein. And it really allows me to uh, give 100% of focus and of sharp thinking, etc. cetera, um, throughout the day. So uh, if you have uh, what it takes, which means uh, avoiding snack when you hang out with friends during the evenings, or maybe just start eating later in the day, I really recommend it. Awesome. Um, any, any additional recommendations? Um, read Unsung. It's a lot of fun. It's uh, U-N-S-O-N-G. Uh, and there's also, yeah, and there's also uh, Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, and uh, you can read it, and then you can uh, excommunicate Dean for not reading it. Exactly. Or I'll read it before you. We'll see, uh, depending on the listener. Um, 
That's amazing. Um, I'm trying to think if I have any new uh, recommendations. Um, I guess uh, if you're not, I'll I'll give I'll give the the cliche ones. Uh, if you're not watching uh, The Last of Us, uh, then you might be living in a cave. I think it's very good. You should. And I'm not um, watching it. You should. I'll add like, it to uh, my list. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's uh, I mean, series that are historically series that are based on computer games are bad, but this one is doing a good job so far. Um, so. Yeah, not, and I'm sure someone will comment that it's actually not based on a computer game, and I didn't know that, so I'm sorry if that's the case. But as far as I know, it's based on a computer game, and it's very good. Um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll uh, uh, leave it at that. Um, there are a bunch of events that are uh, coming up. So um, there's uh, NVIDIA GTC that's happening towards the end of March. You should uh, sign up. It's free. There's a lot of really, really good talks. I'm also giving a talk, so I'm biased. Um, and then if you are going to be at uh, Data Council Austin uh, in Austin, Texas, in the end of March, so I think it's 28th to the 30th of March, I might be wrong, uh, but it's something like that, uh, then I'd love to see you there. Um, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. There are a lot of good people coming, a lot of interesting conversations. And uh, yeah, reach out to me if you're there. So with that... Maybe I uh, can also mention that I'll sure. be uh, in London during April. And if... You or anyone you know has uh, you being the listeners, not specifically you, Dean, though, mm -hmm. as well. Um, if you have anything to do with the alternative protein uh, or animal welfare in general, and uh, you think that we might have an interesting chat, then hit me up. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I think Dean will probably link below. Uh, yes. And by the way, in general, I give also give pro bono consulting sessions to startups that are either uh, founded by female founders, by women, um, or are in the alternative protein space. So if you're interested in that, hit me up. If uh, you have an anything interesting to say about alternative protein and machine learning, I would love to hear it. And uh, I respond to all emails. Wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a big commitment. Um, I told you, intermittent fasting. That's that's true. Maybe that's that's the secret I need to adopt. Um, well, Noah, thank you very much uh, for joining. This was a pleasure. Um, and thank you to the audience. Thank you for listening. Um, and I'll see you here next time. Bye. Thank you, Dean. Thank you for listening to the MLOps podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend or add a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get this episode. Thank you and see you next time.